0: been good to be with you. I appreciate your encouragement so much, and I enjoy having the opportunity to speak to you. When our son left Harding with his degree and went off to Dallas to seek his fortune, he was talking to one of his buddies down there at work, and he said, my parents are coming to see me this weekend. And he said, "Uh, really, both of them? He said, yes. At the same time, he said, yes. He said, boy, you have a weird family, don't you? You know, that would be funnier if it weren't the truth. In other words, it seems that the families that stay together through the years are becoming the exception and not the rule. And uh, we have so many people asking today, well, what's causing all of the problems? And I'm not going there tonight. Probably couldn't share with you anything you didn't already know about it. But I do know of three things that I believe, three keys, I call them, that will keep a marriage together. And I say this to every one of you, young and old, and help us to remind ourselves of our responsibilities and what it takes to keep a marriage together. Marriages may be made in heaven, you've heard this line before, but the maintenance work is done on earth. And this is so true, as you well know. So there are three points, and the first point I want to make is is that of trust. If you would think about it, any relationships that you have in this life must be based upon trust, not just marriage. Friends, neighbors, families, and on and on you can go with it. One time when I was down in a meeting in Mississippi, uh, there was an old schoolmate of mine, and in the afternoon Sunday we spent our time playing the old game that old schoolmates do. Whatever happened to so and so? And he brought up some girl's name, and and I said, Well, I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard from her much since we left uh, school, and I just can't tell you where she is. He said, do you know that when she was at Harding that she cheated on the Bible test? I said, no, I didn't know that. I never had class with her. She did. Brother Richie left the room in his Bible class, and she cheated. I couldn't believe it. She cheated on the Bible test, and he got all exercised about that. And I thought, well, that's probably not the first time or the last that happened, that doesn't make it right, you know, but it happens too often. But what really hit me was, I would hate to be remembered 20 years later by any of my classmates as the one who cheated on the Bible test. And now he told me, I know it. And there's one more, one thing I didn't wish I knew. But at any rate, there's so many, even here in our school, that cannot be trusted, to be honest. Not just students but also older ones as well. Whenever we look for someone to help us, we generally look for someone we can trust. Isn't that right? We look for doctors we can trust. We go to lawyers we can trust. We take our car to a mechanic that we can trust. And when we are looking for a preacher, as some churches are right now, we look for one that we can trust. It's basic to all of our relationships and how important it is for it to be in our home and in our marriage. There was a commercial that came on television many moons ago advertising some credit uh, union or something like that, or some bank, and their slogan was, The most important thing we earn is your trust. Now, you know, I guess that's true of every one of us. Not just businesses, but individuals, the most important thing that I could earn of my family is their trust. And of you is your trust. And every one of you, I'm sure, understands the same thing is so important. Proverbs 31 begins with this section, a worthy woman. No, it doesn't begin, but about verse 11 it starts. And the first thing said about it is, a worthy woman who can find... And do you know what is the very first thing of all the description of the worthy woman in those next 22 verses? The heart of her husband trusts in her. She's a woman that he can trust. You know, trust in a marriage is a lot like money. You have to have it before you need it. If you wait until you need it to try to get it, then you're in very bad shape. If you've been saving your money and have a savings account and a crisis hits, you just pull it out, pay it, and move on. Life goes on and there's no problem. But if you haven't made those deposits, then you're in serious trouble. Same thing is true in a home. And in nearly any relationship between a husband and a wife, there comes a time when one has to look at the other one and say, you've just got to trust me. And it's a sad state of affairs when your partner looks you in the eye and says, why should I? I look upon every day of our lives, in our homes, with our children, with our family, with those we live with and work with. By the way we conduct our lives, we are saying to them over and over again in many, many different ways, you can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. I want to give you three one way is by telling the truth. The Lord tells us in Matthew five thirty-seven that it's uh, heard and been said that uh, who, uh, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. And usually when we get into that, the first thing we hit is, is it all right to swear in court? And then we go round and round on that. I don't think that was in Paul's mind at all. See, the Old Testament says you can make oaths, but you have to keep those oaths. You have to keep your word. You have to be trusted to tell the truth. But our Lord goes on further and says, don't even make an oath. Be the kind of person where you don't even have to make an oath because people know who you are and they believe you just because you said it. That's the kind of truthfulness we need in our homes. Our children need to know that of us. And our spouses need to know that of us, that we are the kind of people that can be trusted. Ephesians 4.25, laying aside all falsehoods, speak each man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. How important it is for us in our relationships to do the same thing. We make deposits by telling the truth. Secondly, we make deposits in our marriage and all our other relationships by being dependable, By doing what we say we will do. By being known as someone who will meet his obligations and take care of what he says he will do for you. I read an interesting book on relationships by Walter Wangering, And he said he went in one time and just announced to his wife, said from here on the bed is going to be made every morning. I'll make the bed every morning. And you go in there and you see that bed every morning without fail. It's made. And that's my way of saying to you, you can depend upon me. Well, that's pretty drastic, man. I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> I, I don't want to go too much on that. Uh, well, I guess I can brag. I make the coffee every night. Isn't that neat? I pour the coffee in there and the water and I've done my day's work at home, you know. no, I, oh, I do every now and then something else. But, uh, but at any rate... By the tasks that you have been called upon to do, do them, and do what you say you will do. Be where you say you will be, and be there when you say you will be there. And be the kind of person that can be depended upon to take care of your obligations, whatever you've said that you would do in your home. But you know there's another one here that's a little bit different and maybe more important than those two, if at least as important, I should say. We make deposits in our marriage by telling the truth and by being dependable. But we make deposits in our marriage by protecting each other. I'm about to say something very important right here. By protecting each other. My wife needs to be comfortable with me and know that I'm not going to embarrass her. That I'm not going to do anything that would hurt her in public. And that she can depend upon me and I feel the same way about her. That she will stand with me and we will stand there together. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter in the Bible, always, you remember the bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think that's verse 7, isn't it? There is one version, the more modern version, that instead of saying bears all things, says always protects. This particular Greek word, bear, can mean to hold up uh, as a pillar holds up a roof of a building. But it can also mean to protect or cover the building. And so covers all things, protects all things. And I see my job as protecting my family. And she stands with her back to my back and she protects me where I feel undefended. And we will cover For each other. And we will do all we can to help each other look good. And we will not be tearing down, especially in public, one another. We will guard intimacies between us. And we will not betray those intimacies in a public fashion. I will protect that, and I will never, if I possibly can, never tell it. And she needs to know that I will do that. And not betray her. And Likewise, the other way. I'm saying something to you very important. I guess you realize this, don't you? This is extremely important. I think it really is. I think that's why teenagers are so insecure, because in their relationships, they haven't reached that stage, and sometimes they knife each other in the back so easily. Rare moments you can find even a, a high school student, and now on a rare occasion a college student you can trust. But too many of them haven't reached that level of maturity. And sad to say, there are many, many people who in their whole lives never reach that level of maturity. Always protects. I love that line. I look upon our home as a secure place. Where people can come in, our children, I can come in there, my wife can come in there, and they can feel safe there. Because they know we will not betray them. And because we, they know they will not betray us, we feel safe. It should be a safe place where we can be protected from the world and be shielded. And every day of our lives, as we live a life of truthfulness, as we are dependable in saying, doing what we say we will do, and as we stand side by side and back to back, and protect each other from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, we are saying to our husband and our wife, you can trust me. The second key of my three, I know all these overlap, but uh, for emphasis I've made three different ones, is faithfulness. By that, I mean marital faithfulness, sexual faithfulness, and other intimacies that go with that, not just that. Sex is for the two of you alone. You know, sex is not dirty, shameful, or sinful. That was uh, a word that we're not supposed to say, you know. That was right along with the four-letter words, this three-letter word. You don't say that in polite society. You know, where God put it in the Garden of Eden there with woman and man... It was a good thing. When he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, uh, it was a good thing. And into the framework of marriage, it is a wonderful thing. But when we use it where God has not allowed it to be, premarital sex, extramarital sex, then it's a shameful thing. I've heard some preachers say, well, you know, one sin is as bad as another. They're all the same. I'm not so sure of that. I guess any sin is bad enough. But it seems to me that this uh, sin of fornication must be in a class by itself. Because this is the only sin, as far as I know, that gives the innocent party the right to remarry. That's pretty strong, isn't that right? Matthew nineteen nine: whoever divorces his wife and puts whoever... Do- and puts her away and marries again except for fornication, commits adultery. And then again, not only in Matthew 19, but also back in Matthew 5, the same thing is said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, Paul encourages us to remain faithful to our partners. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body. But he who commits adultery has sinned against his own body. It sounds to me like Paul is saying there's a sin there that's even worse than the others. Not only in the way it dissolves marriages, but also in the way that it defiles our bodies. I want to read two brief passages from Proverbs. One of these is in Proverbs chapter 5, beginning at verse 18. Well, 15, let's just start there. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. He's not telling you where to get water. He's saying being satisfied with the wife you have. And then we drop down to verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breath satisfy you at all times and be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? And then we turn over one page in the Bible to chapter 6 and begin reading it about verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot clothes and his feet not be scorched? So is one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. The one who commits adultery, verse 32, with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does this. He who would destroy himself does this. By keeping ourselves with our partner, this is one of the most important ways of faithfulness. I was flying to Atlanta. That's where you always fly to when you go off to preach, it looks like. You start from there. But at any rate, uh, I was sitting on the window... And uh, there was a woman, all sort of dressed up nice, sitting there in the middle, and this man over here on the aisle. And you never saw the going on between those two. They were—you thought they were old enough to get out of that, but they were just all over, just being so cute and funny, and and hugging and all this. And I thought this is downright disgusting. You know, making love is wonderful, but watching other people do it is a bummer. <laughs> uh, it really—it uh, gets old in a hurry. Uh. So I just looked out the window, played like they weren't there. And we finally uh, got to the airport, and I followed them out. Well, I followed him out. Uh She didn't get up, and I had to crawl over her awkwardly, and I knew right then something was wrong. Followed him out, and when we got into, uh what do you call that place out there? Terminal, that's what I was trying to say, the terminal. That little room out there, I thought the terminal was the whole thing. But anyhow, thanks for your help, Chris. Appreciate that. And so we went out there. And you know what was there? There was that man's wife, two or three little children, waving like this and hollering. And he went over there and gave her a big kiss. Picked up the children, loved on them. And they went off One happy family. And you know, preachers shouldn't have ugly thoughts, but they do sometimes. And I thought to myself, you scum, you scum. I don't know whether the other woman went off to the next stop, which was Washington, I think. On second thought, she might have gotten off after everybody cleared, so she wouldn't be seen anywhere near him. I don't know. I didn't care that much about it. I just found the one that's looking for me to take me to church, and that was good enough. And you know, that wouldn't be so bad if that's the only time that happened that day. But I'd say that was just the one of, how many would you say, hundred? Or maybe more than that. We may not even want to know. Some of you have a long legacy, and some of you are building on one. We have 45 years of marriage coming up this August. If I did something stupid now, it would be 45 years before I could even get back to where I am now, and I figured it up, and I'd be 114. (laughs) No, worse than that. Yeah, that's what it is. I don't know. It's going to be way up there. Anyway, uh, it wouldn't even be (laughs) worth the trouble Would it Try to get back to that that long. And I'm looking at some of you that have a longer legacy than that, and some of you young folks are already beginning to build on that. And don't ever, ever do anything to break it. Don't ever do anything to break it. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul has some advice along this line, and there are two different ways this verse can be taken. Either way, it could teach a great lesson. In verses 3 and 4 of 1 Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. The word vessel here can mean your wife. In other words, by being unfaithful, he is saying that's no way to treat your wife. You hold her in sanctification and honor, and you honor her to the point that you would never do anything like this that would bring shame or dishonor to her. The word vessel here can also mean your own body. And he is trying to tell us maybe that we keep our body in. You know, not only does our soul, but our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And this is no way to defile our body. Glorify, therefore, God in your bodies. Every other sin is without the body, but he who commits a fornication defiles his own body. I'm sure you remember that from Paul. Paul. And so this verse, of course, is teaching basically the same lesson. You need to decide right now in a calm moment, especially you younger folks. Many of you made that decision years ago, what you would do. When you are presented with this opportunity or temptation to be unfaithful, this is no time to start deciding what you ought to do. You need to make that decision right now in a calm moment here, right uh, before the invitation song, as we sit here and uh, study on these things, that this is the way that I will react. I think that's good in a lot of ways in life. To plan ahead, if this happens here, is the way I'm going to respond, and not wait for the moment to try to figure out if we could anticipate it. And this is what I am going to do. And I think that this is the time to make that decision, and I think this is the time for you to realize that you will never, ever yield to this temptation. Maybe to paraphrase the words of Winston Churchill, never give in. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. Of course, he said never give up, didn't he? But it it applies there just as well. Trust, faithfulness, Third and the final point is commitment. We had a couple get married in this community, and they came to the college church briefly. And the man just went off with somebody. And two or three of us elders were asked to go and visit with him. And it amazed you what he said. They'd been married almost no time. And he said, oh, we said, but what about those vows you made to love and to cherish till death do you part? He said, oh, that's just something you say at a wedding. We didn't take that seriously. That's just something you say at a wedding. Well, I have news for him. There's a father in heaven who takes it very seriously. (laughs) I hate divorce, says the Lord. The Lord takes it very, very seriously. It looks to me like that nowadays we don't realize the seriousness of this decision. The bond that God has given in marriage and what he expects of a marriage. Marriage is called a covenant. Covenant marriages, that's a big thing nowadays. You hear people talk about covenant marriages. I think every marriage should be a covenant. That's what covenant is. A bond or agreement between two people. You know, the Jewish in the Hebrew do not make a covenant. They cut a covenant. Maybe like cut a deal, we would say. And many people think it has to do with the ceremony of the covenant making where they actually take the animal, they sacrifice, and they cut it in two and pass between the two halves of the animal. In other words, saying, if I break this covenant, may I be cut in two like this animal has been cut in two. You remember the story of uh, Abraham back in Genesis, where the smoking uh, fire went between the pieces. You remember that in Genesis. You may remember also a statement by Jeremiah, who talked about the covenant that his people had broken. In Jeremiah thirty-four nineteen, he says, when they cut the calf and pass between the pieces, cut the calf. And we pass between the pieces. This is a covenant. It is most serious. Malachi chapter 2 tells us that marriage is a covenant. It is an extremely serious matter, and it is a bond that is not likely dissolved or easily dissolved. In Malachi chapter 2, I'll begin reading about two verses here. If you'd like to turn there, verse 13... And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, for what reason? Look at 14. Because your wife has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. By covenant. Covenant. That is as serious as it gets. 16 For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Our Lord has very, very strong words about this. And I'm sure that all of us realize that it's in our, uh, it's our responsibility as children of God and as husbands and wives to keep those vows and those promises that we have made. Of course, it takes two to keep them. And I know I'm looking into the eyes, and I know that this is cutting into the hearts of people who have experienced a broken marriage, and my heart is with you, and I don't want to be unfeeling or unloving toward you in what I'm saying to the others. And I know that many of you had very little to do with it. But even if you did, it's not an unpardonable sin. You can thank the blood of Jesus for that. But I am talking to those of you that are in marriages, and maybe some of you that are planning marriage, and maybe even some of you that are having troubles in your marriage. And I hope that you will look at this very carefully to see what the real love that God expects is all about. I suppose that all of you are familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, and that part where Goldie asks Tevye if he loves her. And he goes on, or she, he asked for her rather, and she says, but I'm your wife, I know, but do you love me? And then on and on it goes. And then he says, the first time I met you was on our wedding day, and she said, I was scared. She said, I was shy, so was I. You know how the probably goes on there, I'll not sing it all to you. <laughs> but our father and our mother said we'd learn to love each other. I think that pretty well described the attitude or the customs, I guess I should say, of Bible days. They didn't go off to harding and fall in love. Most of these marriages were contracts made between families. And I've been told that many of them, sometimes the first time they saw the girl they'd marry was on the wedding day, just like this psalm says. And they'd known about it, Megan. There was a girl in Mayfield my hometown, in case you had never heard of that, uh, who was telling this lady, you know, I'm going up to Paducah and I'm going to meet my husband for the first time. And uh, that was even in my lifetime that that happened. So there are customs like that that still go on. <clears throat> we think that we're going to fall in love and that's going to end the whole, uh, begin the whole thing and end all of our problems. Love is a whole lot more. Falling in love. Love is commitment. Love is staying with that person day in and day out. Unselfishly giving your life to them, meeting their needs and building upon that marriage and making it stronger every day of your life. Marriages are made in heaven, but the maintenance work is done on earth. And we need to pray for God's blessings in every way we can. Here's another little story I'll tell you. Oh, I'm going to let you out early, it looks like. <clears throat> Two more stories, then I'm going to quit. Uh, <clears throat> one story is that there was a boy that came in to see me uh, in my office. And uh, he said, Brother Pryor, you're an elder in the college church, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I want you to write a letter that I can take with me everywhere I go that I have the right to remarry. My wife confessed to me last night that she had committed adultery. And if you will write me a letter, then I'll have that, and there will never be any question, uh, regardless of what church I go to. I said, well, I I don't think I'll do that this morning. He said, well, why? She told me there's no doubt about it. She confessed it herself last night. Why won't you? Don't I have the right to remarry? I said, I don't think you have the right to remarry until you have done everything humanly possible to save the marriage you're in, and I don't think you have tried He said, well, doesn't the Bible say that you can do it? I said, I look upon this as meaning that you have done everything you possibly can, exhausted every opportunity. And if there is no way in the world to save that marriage, and that partner is unwilling even to work on it, and is gone, then maybe so there. But your job right now is to try to get that home back together. And I feel very strongly about that. And I have a problem that sometimes we have misused that verse Matthew 19:9 9, Matthew 5 where it just says except for fornication now we can run off and get married again. We made a commitment. We made a covenant as I said earlier. And we're bound by that commitment. Second story very similar to this. <clears throat> I was off in a workshop on the East Coast and there was this Very attractive young lady whose husband, obviously it was her husband, was in a wheelchair and was uh, hardly able even to control, you know, his muscles or anything about it. He was just doing good to sit up. I think they may have had him tied up so he wouldn't fall out of his chair. And she wanted to talk to me in between the presentations I was making, and so I said, Okay. She said, You see, my husband, he was not like that when we married, and I figured that already, she said he was nearly killed in a car wreck. And the doctors say there is uh, no hope that he will ever get any better than he is now and uh, will get only worse. And then, I think I'm quoting her word for word, she said, and I am still young and I have needs. Is there anything that I can do? That's a hard one, isn't it? It's a hard one. And I told her that when she married that man, she promised to him and he promised to her that he would, you would love him better for worse in sickness and in health, and that you would love and cherish him till death do you part. I don't think that's what she wanted to hear that day, but it's what she needed to hear. That was her job now. We should never say what we would do, but I think if something that horrible would happen to my precious wife, and may it never, of course, I think that I would not want anybody else taken care of. I'd want to be there, I'd want to do it. And I'd resent the fact if I were excluded from it. I really feel that way deeply. And I believe there are probably many of you, as you think of your partner, that you feel the same way. But that would be one time you definitely would not want to leave them. Landon Saunders said this, among many things, wonderful things he said, Marriage means a man and a woman looking deep into each other's eyes and saying, I will never leave you. Others may come and go in your life, but I never will, for any reason, ever. If you wrinkle, I'll love you. If you fail, I'll stay with you. If you get sick, I'll feed you, bathe you, and sit up with you. Anything except leave you. I will never leave you. May God add his blessings to his words, and may God add his blessings to each of you, in your marriage, in your home. If anyone can be helped and needs to come in a public way, we certainly encourage you to come as we stand to sing.